Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 93 with... Joseph Makos and... Joseph Bievenet. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So okay. we're back again. Yeah, we're back, and uh, we're back, and it's it's we are we are slinking to 100 episodes, and uh, we've got a bunch of good ones coming up here as we push to 100. And uh, another guest through Skype. Hopefully, we figured out some of our audio issues, and this is going to sound a lot better than the last one. <laughs> yeah, and I I think it's going to be. Um, let me do a little intro here. So we got a little it's like a surprise, super awesome surprise guest today. Um, uh, <laughs> this guest has published 28 books of poetry, including Brush Mine, Secondhand, 2018, Evidence of Being Here, Beginning in Havana, and 27, 2018, Thinking in Jewish, and 20, 2017, Poems Hidden in Play View, 2016, in English and in French. I mean, this is just to name a couple. I mean, there are so many 28 books of poetry. Uh, 2015, uh, Lazar received Alabama's most prestigious literary prize, the Harper Lee Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. And his books of criticism in- include Opposing Poetries and Lyric and Spirit, Selected Essays, 1996-2008. Uh, Hank retired from the University of Alabama in January of 2014, where he is Emeritus Associate Provost for Academic Affairs and Professor of English. He continues to teach courses in Zen Buddhism and radical approaches to the arts. Hank Lazar, how are you today? I'm doing well. Good, good to talk to you guys. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, I mean, I, I was kind of wanting to start at the beginning uh, of this little this little interesting tidbit about your thesis that you wrote. Oh, God. Where you worked. Where, no, I, 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 well, it's just something that I did in my thesis, too, that I defended against you, and I didn't even know this. That's why it's cool is that you wrote through Thoreau. Correct. Yeah. And, and that, and that, and that was like your, um, this, this, this thing that you sort of came back to later, I guess, and looked, I mean, I, you knew what you were doing the whole time that you were able to get a thesis published where you didn't even, where it was, where it was like, how did you put it? You said, uh, wasn't any of your own writing. <laughs> right. Right. No, I didn't, I didn't know any of that really. The funny thing, A thing to note is that context and vocabularies change. So in 1973, when I wrote that thesis, there was no such thing as docu-poetry that any of us knew about, although obviously there were some earlier practitioners. You look at somebody like Williams and Patterson, or you look at Paul Metcalf, uh, or you look at Ted Anselin. There there are plenty of people that in some way or another, God, Charles Reznikoff, for that matter, people who are substantially making use of pre-existing documentary materials, but that the language to become aware of that didn't exist, at least not at that time, or at least not, maybe I wasn't aware of it. And so, no, I didn't know what I was doing exactly. I knew that I was really drawn to Thoreau's writing, as I am again right now. The course I teach next fall, we're going to read Walden, and I'm returning to it and reading the new Thoreau biography that Wall's has written and it's superb. And so I just, uh, I was a really stubborn uh, autodidactic kind of student 
who I lived 180 miles away from campus for two of my years in graduate school. And I wanted school to give me a certificate, but not bother me too much. So I kind of went off from my own way. And so I was reading a lot of the journals and extracting just as one would do in a day book kind of thing, extracting passages that I found interesting and came upon the notion of turning them into, into poems. And I also included some photographs. But in part, I mean, the motivation partly to do a thesis, which wasn't required, is that cleared three hours of coursework where I didn't have to go to class. And so I had the opportunity to do something I wanted. And there was a very a, a wonderful professor there, Ronald Clapper, who's now 80 years old and with whom I've resumed a conversation just in the last six months. Uh, and he was very receptive to what I what I wanted to do. And and. It's not dissimilar to what Thoreau did in, in extracting from the journals to produce books uh, that are different than the journal entries. And so this kind of recycling and use of materials. And it's only when I started communicating again with Ron that I laughed and thought, because in the, that interview you're looking at, Gillian Parrish asks a lot about the way I use quotation in my poetry, and it's always accompanied the work. But I finally realized damn, this loops all the way back to 1973. It's not just a habit of the notebooks of the last 12 years where quotation is often figured into every page. So it gave me, it's a, it's a renewed perspective. So did I give you a hard time, Joseph, when you were defending? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Good. Okay, well, good. That would have been very uh, hypocritical if I did, but awesome possible. <laughs> no, I think the tip that I got onto, which, which I think, uh, I as, as I was told, uh, was enjoyed very much by the defense committee was that I did use the defense as a performance, right? just as a, just as a, just as a poet can use a reading or a book as a performance or a piece or, or, um, or a visual piece or a visual work can be used as performance. You know, I, I decided to use the structure of the of the thesis, even the formatting of the thesis and the structure of the thesis and the structure of the defense as a performance. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Because I mean, what we're what we're saying is, and this has probably perpetually been true for poetry, which is part of what makes it interesting, is we're constantly kind of struggling against the seeming boundaries in, and and um, strictures of poetic expression, and asking ourselves, what could that be now? What could we do with it now? Uh, and and not with the assumption, not some some sort of idiotic assumption that because things change they get better all the time. But that's why the word experimental always makes sense to me. Is that experimental poetry is just simply about well, what if we did it this way? Well, what if I did this? What if instead of doing this, I did this? And you see what happens. So yeah, that's that's it. We've we've been doing that. <laughs> well, there's a shift, you know, because well, there's there's like a there's like a. It seems that poets in their practice, you know, sometimes they, they, they get even resigned in the shifts that they, that they create for themselves, where the, where the shifts become grooves and holding patterns for work too, as opposed to shifting the form entirely. Because if you're, if you're, if you're, if you take a piece and then shift the form completely, you know, that can just be like a revisit to an old theme or an old body of work. Whereas shifting it in the, 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 per, in the perspective of it could really create something new. Like it loops back. And, and, well, the, and the reason I, I bring that up is because it seems like you – it seems like you've always got like three or seven 
things going on all at the same time. And that gets you a little bit of each coming up and then you bubble up with multiple things kind of in a sequence. And then they don't necessarily come from one sequence, but it might be something from nine years ago and something from last year and something from four years ago. And then it comes out in a, in sort of like this way. And it's, uh, I guess like the way that you bring it out, tell us a little bit about how you're able to have these sort of rotating spheres that come that, that are, that are like in their own orbits as your projects and your books. And then how that sort of like, maybe like one of them is ready for to be birthed or, or jettisoned, or maybe it's finally coming back after 13 rotations to be risen up. And then it gets dropped into a, a, a book again, or the, the return of the page, you know, tell us a little bit about how you, how that, well, Has it's, it's been like that. Has it always been like that? Or is that something you found like a stride? Uh, well, first of all, it's not as intentional as you describe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the first confession with it um that's just kind of the way i i work and do things so uh, if you were to look a little farther over in the study where i am right now i i'm a person who i'm not reading one book at a time i and i read probably about 10 books at a time so i'm dipping into and they can range from poetry to philosophy to zen text to the thorough biography and I'm really reading those kind of steadily through, but just pulling in the morning, especially just saying, well, what, what do I th think I want to be reading now? And then in terms of the writing, uh, an important thing that happened is I didn't get really started in publishing significant books until later in life. So I didn't really publish a first collection till I was 42. So a lot of, a lot of beginning writers think, you know, if they don't have a book out by the time they're 26, they they really fucked up in a major way, <laughs> and their life is they, they failed at what they're trying to do, which I think is ridiculous. So, um, so I had a backlog to begin with, and so my temperament as a writer seems to be kind of restless in its nature, and so I've practiced what I've described as, as serial heuristics, where I dwell in a particular form of writing that I am, and these are invented forms for either a period of time or a fixed number of writings and then move on because I'm really not interested in self-imitation or a model that suggests mastery. So inherently, you know, Joseph, that's going to suggest, and are you both Joseph? Yeah. Okay. So Joseph one and Joseph two, but Joseph one was asking the question, but um, so in, inherently that restlessness is going to move me around through different forms and shapes. Now, the notebooks, the shape writing, it took a good while, two, three years of working in different notebooks before the shape writing emerged as the dominant thing to do. But even there, the commitment is for every page to differ from the prior page in appearance. And I'm working without drafts, so there's an improvis improvisatory element to it. Uh, and then getting back to your notion of this kind of multiplicity going on, suddenly old style poems began to emerge in the notebooks. They, I, I kind of think it, it, it sounds like mystical bullshit. And I did grow up in California. So that may have been where I got the virus, but um, it, it, I think of myself as a door or a gateway for writing. And I try not to disturb that. 
So what comes through and asks me to be written, I listen to it. And in the notebooks, when I suddenly started writing these things that look like regular poems, left-hand margin justified, it freaked me out. But, and at first I was embarrassed. And I thought, God, what is, ugh, I don't want, <laughs> you know, please, no. What, but, ha- what happened? Did my door close? No, it opened. It, sta- it was just, it stayed open. And that's what was coming through. Only I was uh, initially too judgmental to understand uh, that this is fine. See where that leads to. Why, why would I rule that out? What, what prejudice was I encountering? Because what you said about writers changing for doing different things, that was something I saw maybe in the mid nineties as a good avant-gardist uh, and, and good friends with a number of people from the language community. I started bumping up against strictures and restrictions there that I hadn't been aware of, or I had been sort of um, writing in a mode that I didn't realize kind of internally I was acting to sort of please my imagined sense of what it meant to be avant-garde. And th- after a while of doing that, I started to, to get a sense of what was being left out or in a more colloquial language, the danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And that's when I returned more. I, I re-engaged with lyrical beauty and sound and musicality and writing in the book Days that Bill Lavender published with, with Lavender Inc. And then eventually turn more toward a sort of phenomenology of spiritual experience, which I felt needed some renewal and, and some fresh language and approaches to it. And so, I mean, that's covered in that essay book title, Lyric and Spirit. And so I've, I've always kind of been restless and, and looking at different ways to proceed. Um, but the other, when I said it was non-intentional, the other thing that happened, so I do, I live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I don't live in Berkeley or New York. And what that means is it's, this is hardly, it's not gravel roads and football or, and pickup trucks, although that's an element. Um, my, op, some of the opportunities for collaboration are inherently more limited and certainly for my visibility limited. So some of the things that you see coming up, it depends on who's around that I can play with. And th- and that gets, but actually that's turned out to be quite fine because there's there's enough. Uh, I got my hair cut yesterday. My hairdresser Kim uh, has taken some of my notebook pages and had them printed on canvas, and they're in her shop. So we're going to do a discussion reading in the hair salon in February. Now I'm going to really I uh, will dig that because it'll be a different audience and different relationship. And exactly, exactly. Yeah, and the canvases will be there. And then from my class last semester, is a really great flute player, and he was working with a percussionist. And so the three of us are going to do a, uh, do a 20-minute piece as part of a house concert in a week or so, based, again, on the notebook pages. And then I was talking to a percussionist in Coffee House. We now have those in Tuscaloosa. And, uh, and this guy walked by and saw the pages we were looking at, and he said, I want to work with you. And I thought, yeah, right. But um, turns out he's a professor and directs the university chorus. And he's working with a woman composer from Minneapolis who's working from the Da Vinci notebooks to create a chamber music choral piece with saw a new software package that will show in real time being played by someone uh, in relation to the music. 
segments from Da Vinci's notebook. So now I understand why he wants to take pages from the notebooks for that big concert. So we're starting to meet, but none of that's intentional. You know, it's, it's, and the opportunities again, in that sort of goofy way, uh, I, I trust them. And so I'm learning. I just, I just wish I weren't as old as I am because all these things start are percolating up as possibilities for, for what to do. And it's all pursue them and see what, see what we can do. But it's just, it kind of boils down to learning to um, accept the gift or the opportunity as it arises and have a, have a feel for that when it's going to be pertinent. And th- that's just a few. So there's that, that stuff's all going on. But man, that stuff's rad. And the truth is, is that you're coming to those things in your direction, which is like a fresh and new direction. And it doesn't, right. it doesn't matter when you're coming at it in life, man, because like you're doing it now and it's, it's awesome to see because there might be some path where like maybe these things weren't possible if you came at it at a different point, you know, you're, you're, you're like, a yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I, and thank you for saying that. And it's, and I get a great joy from those collaborations and always, and, and learn from them. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. You're probably right. I wouldn't, if maybe they would have happened earlier in my life if I had been ready for them, but now, and the notebooks just, God, they, they just suggest so many possibilities that I was completely unaware of there. I'm just sort of scribbling and doing them. And then all these things happen to them. They, they're not suited, for example, I'm going to university of Kansas in February. I have to figure out how to work with this a little bit as I, as I always do. I don't get that many reading opportunities. But when I do, I'm now aware that with the notebooks, it doesn't make sense to do a conventional reading of them. And so I have to begin to make sure first that images can be projected so an audience can see the shape of what's being done. And if at all possible, do them as multi-voice pieces because they are. It ain't it ain't just, the, just the and I'm so sick of that, that old approach to the reading of the poet getting up, you know, me sensitive, you shut up, sit down, be quiet, listen and appreciate my sensitivity. Well, most of that shit's already available on video or audio at Penn Sound or somewhere else. And it's kind of insulting because you can, you can read. So I want to find something else to do in that occasion that makes sense. And so I'm still grappling with that. I, st- I haven't, haven't fully figured it out. And always, it depends on circumstances and space. Just down in Uruguay, you know, um, mm-hmm. at the at the uh, at the uh, the Montevideo, you know, the Mundial Poetico with Martini, yeah. and you know the the uh, the um, South Americans are just so uh, just so physical and just so relational and playful in their use of multimedia and what's. Uh, expressive and allowed on the stage in a poetry venue is very, very wide compared to yeah, what will happen getting up there in a reading, reading in, in the United States, oh. you know? Really? <laughs> and, and I mean, it's just so, it just seems so like segregated for lack of a better term. It's just like, you've got your slam things going on here and you've got your very <laughs> formal state readings going on here and you've got your university style readings here and, You've got your underground readings here, you know, and like the most welcoming place that I ever thought for uh, for for me as far as reading at a venue was like 
in an art gallery or like or like or like in a bar or like in but not necessarily like in a reading where there's you know where it's like people are coming there for a reading it's 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 like you know breaking that open and doing some you know and and, and in another way like what you just said like breaking it open and uh having changing the standard to create a more uh, immersive it's really to create a, an augmented immersive experience for the listener for the, for so the, the listener for the participant exactly for the listener to be a participant so I, I think you know the model that's a little in the back of my mind but it's partly an imagined model in some ways is sort of the um, little the, the jazz concert in the living room the living room event uh, as more immersive and so my kind of Jewish side would suggest what I need is, is um, a minion, which is 10 people. So if we have 10 people, I'm on. And I think that's actually the better. And that's something I've wanted to do in New Orleans. I've still been, I've talked to Roger Kamenetz and to Rodrigo and, and Bill. It just, the timing hasn't quite worked out yet. But that's what I really want to do next would be a kind of living room event that's a display, that's a, I can pass around notebooks. We can, whoever's there, we can devise ways to sound out a few pages, see what's possible, and and do that uh, rather than, you know, the stand-up poetry reading, maybe we could just call that fetishized boredom. And just, that's what, you know, and now I understand some of David Anton's displeasure and, and struggle with the poetry reading and why he went to the talk poem, which I sort of understood, but now I understand viscerally because I'm just uncomfortable. I'll do it if I have to to stand up and read you what's there. But it really, I just am aware of the lost opportunity. And, and, and by the way, in a subsequent conversation, hook me up. I want to go to Montevideo. I, I, you know, I speak, oh, man. I speak Spanish uh, and, and they have um, herbal preferences that I do as well. And I'd love to go. <laughs> Man, you should. Yeah, um, well, as soon as we hear about the next, when it's going to happen next, you, I, I will I will be forwarding you all the information as soon as I get it. And maybe a little, maybe a little different this year. Yeah. Because they have their election going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're yeah. still figuring it out. It's election year, so it's like something, <laughs> something's going down, but. Um, okay. There might but be. I would love to, and then ideally, if I could, if I could bring a musician with me, so that then I wouldn't be talking about, well, this is the way we do this. So I work with a guitarist as well, but he's really very sick right now, and so I'm hoping he recovers. And that Davy, his name is Davy Williams, and I hope that Davy's getting better and is able to to travel some. Or again, maybe the flute player that I'm working with, maybe Nathaniel, would be able to figure out a way to go. So it'd be so much more fun and interesting to do the performance. I don't know if you knew this, when I was in New Orleans, I did a reading at UNO. And uh, that was kind of a wide-ranging thing. And I ran into a good friend of mine, Bryce Miller, who was in the mayor's office for a little while on cultural economic development and then out pretty quickly. Uh, but he's a really good trumpet player. And we got together for coffee at, at what is it, Fair, Fair Grind? Nice. Yeah, place I love. And, and so we were sitting around talking and he said, well, come on out to Snug Harbor. Uh, I'm pl- I always play, in, it's Wednesday night, we play with uh, Delphia Marcellus's band. And if you come on out, we'll just call you up on stage and you can do a jazz poetry piece. 
And I thought, oh, he's just he's bullshitting me. This, but I went and went with John Gary, and we're sitting there. I was into about a second drink, and suddenly Delfio says, "There's this poet in the audience, Hank Lancer, and let's <laughs> let's call him up to do a number." Well, he looked at me as I started because I don't do slam, and I don't. It's not I'm not spoken word in that sense. I think I believe there's music in the poetry already as spoken. Okay, and so. I started it. The other thing that happened, I walked in, I didn't have any books with me. So for the first time in my life, I was challenged really, can you just do it? Can you just wing it and do it? And there's enough in memory that I, I and the drinks maybe help, but there's enough in memory that I knew, okay, this, I can do something. And so when I got up and started in, the look on Delfio's face was like, the hell is he doing? Because it wasn't what he expected. So there were, Bass and drums were going for a while with me. And then he started to make a little noise on the horn. So I thought, okay, he wants to solo. So I backed off a little bit and he did. And then we started to get in sync and he got more comfortable with my kind of spouting phrases that have some musicality to them. And then the whole big band of about 12 people kicked in and we did about a four or five minute piece. I could, I could send you the link to it or send you. Uh, That's very it, was, cool. it was a very fun thing. Uh, and I think earlier in my life, I just would have shit my pants and not done it, but <laughs> and just, Oh no, no. But, uh, it was, it turned out to be fun, but again, another one of those weird opportunities and kind of a once in a lifetime thing. I'm going to send you a link too to this thing that I, 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 uh, I, I see a cognate in, um, this dancer that I know from, mm-hmm. from Detroit named Leah, who is very much engaged with, uh, string instrument soloists. Well, uh-huh. she has done this with a bunch of musicians, but solo. It's always solo, and she right. does it with her cousin. And he's and he's playing on the violin while she's huh. doing dance, dance, dance work. And and it is like and it is like really has an interesting uh, cognate to like your poetry and with music as well. Like it's it's like so tied together, you know, like in this way. But think of this. So if we had violin, dance, and a notebook page. Because I've always thought, well, essentially, part of what another way to describe what happens with the shape writing is as choreography on the page, and so that that's a kind of missing link in terms of an opportunity that hasn't quite presented itself to me. But I really think, based on an impression of the page, someone should be dancing it. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it wouldn't have to be obeyed literally, but it could offer a suggestion and certainly this stuff is not original like if you start looking at anthony braxton's scores or john cage's or or brown's or others you know this this isn't just the only time this is this is happening where we're finding different ways of kind of writing or approaching everything i was just actually like playing in my mind all these different potential potentials for ways that readers could line up on the floor and or yes. like, or line up on the, on the, on the re, on sort of like the stage. And, right. and, and really this, these sort of ideas that, that sort of flow with your, uh, uh, your visual work is that like, there's, it's just, it, it like has potential for disruption of, right. of, of the poetic field. So much as like the actual performance space that's been, well, it's been, it's really like, 
either it's like a complete performance space or it's just poetry, you know, because right. some readings it's like it's some readings do go into that space, you know, but it's <laughs> it's fewer than it's fewer readings that do go into that space. But I was thinking about actually what the stage would be like if you had four readers and you positioned yourself on the stage like one could just be where there's just someone's in a circle at the end, one in the middle, someone's just in the middle spinning around and you could be doing your a piece like that or like four people up on a stage and some people go back and some people go forward. And if you had everyone mic'd in such a way, it could be a pretty interestingly disruptive space to take your visual work and actually choreograph that on the pay, on the stage. Well, and again, I've, I've done bits and pieces of what you're describing, but if you think about it tactically, practically, if you're if there's a, a day if there's a reading event happening, what you've described requires rehearsal, and it, it, and so occasionally, so so an alternative. The problem in a reading, so if, if you get since people get bored really quickly now, um, you know, you, you get fifteen minutes or thirty minutes to do it's maybe thirty minutes to do one share of a reading. Well, to do, to do what you're talking about, and I've done that a little bit with classes or groups of people who are there for a while or who are captive for one reason or another, it, it, it takes a while. So what you just described, even do a, a sort of rough version of it, might take 20 or 30 minutes with one page. And the other question I have about it, just being um, old-fashioned for a moment and, and still having the residue of, of being a professor, uh, I wonder whether what you're describing increases depth of understanding or not or whether it becomes a sort of entertainment evasion of that aspect, which wouldn't necessarily be bad. It's just a different transfer of what's what's there. But I haven't really had enough experience. I've had one experience where I know that the answer was yes, and that was at Appalachian State where, the, where there was a particularly intense page that students performed in a gallery, and they worked on what they were going to do. But there's certain, it, it occurred at a time... In the span of, after a span of two years, there were nine suicides at Appalachian State, and the student. This one of the key line in this poem is: "Must it be suffering that breaks and awakens us?" And they joined together in a kind of serpentine motion, joining arms. And the videographer was crying, and I was as well. It was just like, "Holy shit!" So I knew that time they their depth of understanding took place in the physical actions you're describing. But I don't always know, or even if we do it as a multi-voice piece or something like that, I know that people are liberated from the passive listening, and that's good. But I don't know, and maybe there is no way to know, or maybe if something happens, it happens over time more slowly than I imagine. It's still probably going to create more of a better depth of understanding than just passively listening to someone read it to you. I'm not, no, I'm not sure of that. Uh, you may be right, uh, and I'm, I don't, I'm not sure enough to disagree either. It's just I think there are two different modes of engagement with what's there, and they're and they're different. One comes out of a whole tradition of reading in a certain kind of way that we're we're so trained in that we fail to realize how much it's been pounded into our heads. And in the other case, you're doing something radically fresh in its feel. And so I would say there's just there are different kinds of learning, and I'm fine with both. But 
I don't know the, the, the other one, the newer one, I don't know quite how to describe yet, which I guess is fine. So maybe I have to pay attention. So like, I like, I think I like this theme of the transformation of the, of that space. The, right. The, because I think that the, that space is so tied up in, in politic and drudgery and, and, and like a status quo and the, the whole, right. like the whole, like systematic, you know, publishing industry and readings. And it's just like, so tied up in this, like a uh, stale, it's so stale right now. Yeah. I think, yeah, it needs some, some freshening up. So what I, when I was thinking, when I'm able to do what we're describing, be with a group and explore what can be done. So I call the, that, uh, uh, call those word events and they're just they're events with the words that we see what where will this go and in fact one person did have uh, this was at a, a small community gallery in tuscaloosa a person suggested that everyone lie on the floor in the shape of the poem and speak based on their s- space within that configuration and i said i never thought of that and it was it was it was cool. It was interesting. So the word event would be an entry into an unexpected domain with a given script. And there's, you know, I would typically photo, photocopy a, a range of pages and say, what do you want to do? What's, what are you drawn to? And then listen to suggestions and intervene some because I have spent more time with the pages and have done this stuff enough to have some guiding ideas, but also wanting to step back and listen to the fresh stuff that comes out too. But what a question about Montevideo, about Uruguay, because I'm real interested in this, these kind of institutional questions. So let me get, so Uruguay, I bet like most Latin American countries, there are not programs in creative writing or MFA degrees in poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at one point when we were at San Miguel de Allende during uh, Bill's tenure of UNO abroad and all that, there was a person, a, a novelist, um, Monica, I forget her last name, who was developing what she said was the first MFA creative writing program in Latin America. And I thought, well, that's, it's sort of sad that that's happening in a way that, because um, we probably have about 500 in America. And I find myself increasingly thinking that, um, the institutionalization of poetry as a given and received thing with this kind of fetishized attention to what people write is a big mistake. Whereas I think because the nature of the product is not that produced in fiction or, or so-called creative nonfiction, where in fact you do have a legitimate product that an agent would broker and that houses would publish and where you could get advances and movie rights and all that stuff. But I really think that to become the act, to become an actual poet, uh, should not be given to one and should a structure in fact should not be provided. And I, I, as I return to Thoreau, it's, um, I, I just constantly stick with his phrase that trade curses everything it touches. And, and I think a lot about the nature of the poetry product and I'm a slow learner. So it's taken me a long time to get to some of these, understandings it's hard to get your ego out of what you're doing in that prestige hierarchy joseph that you were talking about and those structures to um get away from self-pity self-centeredness all that stuff to realize the blessing and wonder of poetry being a worthless product 
and once that once that's embraced rather than as a pity party it becomes a tremendously liberating relationship to a central part of one's life that's no longer mistaken as a profession or an occupation and and it's a calling in an older sense or a vatic or visionary kind of experience as i think of it uh and that's so i'm starting i will probably end up writing on this and and totally alienating whatever minimal relationship I have to institutional poetry in America. So I'll just, I, I hope you'll still be my friends. <laughs> no, I don't think we're too worried about that. No, but I think you're right. I mean, that, that, that is the nice thing about it. I mean, some people don't see it that way, right? But it is a blessing that you don't have to worry about that. Right. You, you can do, you can explore whatever you want to explore. It's not really going to make you any less available than you were <laughs> if you were right. trying to do what people want you to do. <laughs> right. Well, in fact, less available, or, or you'll just get clogged up in a certain odd kind of way. Uh, it, so, again, I find myself thinking about that, and and, uh, and I got the same response. I've traveled to Cuba, Cuba a few times and asked that, that same question at their major arts institute. I said, so what do you do about creative writing? And they looked at me like I was crazy, and I knew they would. I kind of wanted that response because somebody wants to write, you read, and you hang out in groups, and you you hang out with other poets, and you share material, and, and that's that's what you do. But it's not inculcated in the same way that certain other craft activity, certain other artistic activities can be that have differently viable products or seem to. In some ways, I don't know. I mean, I think people who are successful in those countries are as or more successful than anyone in America writing poetry ever is. But it still somehow remains a cultural, a, a primarily cultural thing rather than something where you're selling a product. Right, right. Because it's a deeply held, I think you're exactly right. It's a deeply held cultural value that poets speak and investigate a certain kind of truth or engagement with language or engagement with what it means to be human. And that's a respected cultural activity that then in, in complicated ways in Latin America fuses with politics. So we, you can think of cases of like Octavio Paz or, or Pablo Neruda as being some of the more famous instances. But there, there is a sense that that figure of, of the poet is of cultural importance. But not necessarily. It it sort of just happens in spite of itself in a way that people grow up reading and thinking about it, and so some people write, and that's just that that strikes me as as a sensible way. I was going to say like Montevideo, like uh, you're going to have to be ready for a whole different format of uh, of readings, you know. So yeah. it starts yeah. things start up around seven ish, go till about ten for the first reading, and then everyone meets back up at like one in the morning or midnight and does a reading until like two or three in the morning. So there's like two readings every day for like seven wow. days, for like seven, uh, it was six days straight. Yeah. We did yeah. like, we did like, we did like a lot of readings. <laughs> we did like over 12 <laughs> readings in five days. It was, well, I can't take that much. I couldn't take that much poetry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As a traveler too, I would, uh, I would wander off some. I would. I would not. I, I'm always bad at conferences that way too. I just. It's kind of like that. 
museum fatigue that is documented that, yeah, for two hours, it's just blah, 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 unless it's really exceptional stuff. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I don't know. I'm just still thinking about the, the other, the bit before. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it wouldn't happen. It could not happen in our lifetimes, but it, I wonder if there is a path to create a role more like that for poetry in American culture in the future. It seems to exist at times of tragedy or occasionally a solemn moment when you have the kind of that gesture of the poet who reads at the inauguration, although certainly not at this last one, but um, here and there that happens. And whether that's at what level of legitimacy rather than just sort of a little kind of flash or piece of, yeah, yeah, parsley on the side of the plate is hard to, I think that actually think when Robert Frost read, read the gift outright at Kennedy's inauguration, that's a powerful poem in its own strange way. And so that's a, a different, yeah, but. And then I think, you know, at the time of 9-11 or a time of a mass shooting, suddenly people have an interest in, in poetry as an expressive, an expressive moment. So I, I think, and actually lots of people write poetry. If you, it, it, people lament the lack of a kind of central culture in America. I don't think that's so bad, really. It just, poetry meets so many different needs and uses. So I'm now fond of saying, I don't know what somebody says to me, is this a, hands me a poem, is this a good poem? That I can't answer. I can tell you whether it excites me and or nourishes me, but that's just me, and that's just and I have odd tastes. So someone else, it it could meet a very important emotional or psychological need, regardless of the nature of the writing itself. And so there's so many different small, so many different types of poetry all over the U.S. And do I like them all, or do they all do they appeal to me? Not really, but. That's fine. Why shouldn't that be the case? That's, that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's gonna be there's gonna be a diversity, you know, and right. and some and, and also like there's it's not just a diversity of like a scene. It's like a scene, but beneath the scene, it's really about community, and it's right. it's really about like what's your community based on. Like, is your poetry community like in Cle- when we were in Cleveland, we had this poetry community that was like playing in our living room that's what it was it was like playing mm-hmm. the, it was playing in the basement at, late at night with a lot of beer and a lot of smoke and doing n- weird noise weird noise stuff with jazz and with poetry and combined with art rock and it was all about being in, a, in an underground space with a bunch of people partying till late and 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 nobody could hear us you know but in right. other, in other communities you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that people in other communities there's like there's like a healing thing that's going on with poetry and there's and there's right. there's like a lot of healing work going through and like a lot of conversations that need to happen in social settings are happening in in uh, poetry readings and then and then you can or like change, the most or altering the relationship to nature or or change relationship to nature through poetry as a means of attention or link to um, qualities of meditation and and being in the present and, and and slowing down, but there's again so many different different uses going on and giving voice to a range of, of identity based politics, the voices that have not been heard so much. So 
there are all these different communities. Uh, honestly, do I like all of that? Po- all of the poetry that we're describing? Well, not really. But that's so what? So what? That's just reach uh, nourished in a different way. Or I guess what it is? It's almost like in, in Jewish lore, the notion is that when when one reads the Torah, it's imagined that there need to be about there need to be seventy two different viewpoints to engage a passage. And actually each of these views of what's being read is necessary to fulfill the energy and nature of that passage. It's not a problem that there are these different views. It's right. Yeah. And so maybe that's the kind of eco health of poetry more broadly speaking. And all we can each do is honestly and with integrity commit to what we can do. And it, that has a certain fingerprint to it or specificity to it. And it takes a while to learn what that is because of, of this uh, school-based need and, and, and familial need to please others. And that, that has to eventually evaporate, not because one stubbornly wishes to uh, avoid pleasing anyone or to write in a way that pleases no one and just be an asshole about it. That's not really it either. But if you find what it is that you're in, in the deep South phraseology, find what you are meant to do. But that's, I don't find that so goofy. I really, I would also assent to that in spite of my modest sarcasm. I wonder how much the whole system of, 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 you know, I wonder where like the, I wonder where like where like the problems really al- really um, align, you know, or like not say problems, but like sort of like uh, walls, so to speak. Uh, and what I mean by that is is like you know, is it is it is it poetry contests? Is it is it the is it the amount of work that's getting published? Is it like because I always think about like sort of create space and and how Amazon and how like really like Amazon controls the. I mean. I know this is a little bit weird to say, but if you really think about it, a- Amazon controls poetry in in America. It does. It does. Well, just the people who want to publish that way. Yeah, but that's but. not. That's eighty percent of publishers use fucking CreateSpace, and that's and that's yeah. And but, that's but don't you think that if you really look at the poets in the world that exist, well, in in the U.S. that exist, but probably in the world too, that probably at least half of them never publish. A full-length collection like that, they're publishing smaller books that are made in different ways. I'm saying that I think I think Creative Space has made it too easy to publish. Is what I'm saying. Well, that might be true. But. <laughs> so there's, if you make it too easy to publish, you know, you, you're going to have a lot of shit. You know, but you will, you will anyway. It doesn't matter. It's, I, th- I just think that doesn't it doesn't matter that Amazon. I think is a, is a massive distributional convenience, and uh, and that's got problems. And then you'll have Others who will say very um, intently, they'll only buy from, say, small press distribution or directly from the publisher. So there is an ethics of, of buying involved. And Amazon dictates to uh, to some degree. Uh, they've gotten a little bit better. I mean, now apparently they're asking publishers to shrink wrap the books. And that's added. That they add if, if they're going to carry and, and sell them. And so that adds a, a potential extra cost. I knew there were. When I was directing the University of Alabama Press, I knew there was always a um, 
oh, I don't know, kind of a weird system as to how quickly you would get the image of your book up and a kind of cue that that, that process. So yeah, there, there are gatekeeping elements there. I don't, I don't know the notion that, that too much gets published. And if there were, if it were harder to publish, would you have better work? I don't know. I don't trust the gatekeepers either. So I just, and I think the truth is it takes, it takes a long sorting out period to find something that really um, rewards rereading and sustained investment in that particular text. And even then, there's no total reliability. Historical circumstance suddenly dictates that something comes into view that we can begin to understand. So, I mean, one of my idiosyncratic thoughts on all that is that um, Emily Dickinson came back into massive currency, say, in the uh, mid to late 80s, because of computer technology based on the notion of the hot link. So that if Emily Dickinson is writing a poetry where at key moments, there are three variants where she's indicating by a little plus sign and other words down below. Suddenly we realize that, wait a minute, why shouldn't text be immediately multiple and we can read that. And so then there suddenly became an interest with, and we saw the way technology reshaped line breaks and things like that. And we started thinking, well, now, wait a minute, what are, maybe we can respect the manuscript format in different ways. But so it's, it's weird, just circumstances will shape what we're able to suddenly read again in a way that has some, some pertinence to it. Certainly the current political environment is asking us to read certain other texts different, with a different resonance. Pertinence. I mean... I mean, that's all that, all that, yeah. I mean, I still think that it's a, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a tricky little thing, you know, the way that, I mean, uh, people put their, put, I don't know. I think people are publishing too much. I think it's. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're they're not forcing you to read it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so what, what, that, what that has done also is, destroyed the illusion that any of us can keep up with what's going on. And maybe that's, that's kind of nice. There, people who are after figures of excellence uh, will be dismayed <laughs> because it's just the, the barrage, the onslaught of material is so massive right now that it's so, so we each find, I don't know, we through our friendship networks, People turn us on to th- it's. It's no different than in music, in a, in a way where you, you, we rely on friends with tastes that are somewhat similar but just different enough that they can keep turning us on to something of. You know, it usually begins with, "Have you heard blah blah blah?" or "Did you know about this?" and and it kind of works with more with independent films in that kind of way, or even in with TV shows. Now there's so much out there. You need to do that, right? You could never wade through all of it. <laughs> No way. <laughs> so, as some have noted, it's a weird word to apply to ourselves, but so we've all become curators. Well, I mean, we have a, yep. we have a feed. I mean, you know, depending on how much you engage with the social media thing, every day, every day I just keep thinking more and more about how to disengage with social media. This seems like a, it seems like a good idea right now. Well, I think just... Or just don't engage. It, Bienvenue, just sporadically. Like Wait, but aren't you doing? Are we doing a blog? Aren't we doing a podcast? <laughs> yeah, we're doing. 
<laughs> so we're doing, we're contributing to your problem, Joseph. That's mostly what I use social media for. Advertise it's just to podcast. promote this podcast. <laughs> Shit. All right. Well, Joseph, just edit this part out. <laughs> no, <that's laughs> <even in. laughs> we can just edit this out. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I know we went through this whole discussion of how you don't like to read because it doesn't. Uh, doesn't give across what ha- is happening on the page, but is there something you could read for us today? Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> but it wouldn't be so much be the, the shape writing piece necessarily. That wouldn't. Yeah. Let me, let me, it'll take me a second to find it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I can't find the more sensible thing to read would be from the poems that look just like poems. But um, I'll t- instead I'll read you. I'll break. Uh, I'll uh, defy what I was just saying, and I'll read from the the new the new book called "Slowly Becoming Awake," so you can see the way this is a hard copy proof. And so what you oops, so what you see facing pages will be the shape writing, and then the transcription all in the sixth color. And so I'll just read one that, in fact, we're working with the, uh, going to be working with a, a flute player and percussionist. will be one of the pieces we'll incorporate into the suite that we'll do. So one way to read it is, can you tell me what you will be thinking five minutes from now? Consciousness and its objects, the little things reassuring us that we are here. Consensual reality, taking off in any direction after all. Consensual reality, taking off in any direction after all. Can you tell me what you will be thinking five minutes from now? Consciousness and its objects. Consensual reality, the little things. Consensual reality, reassuring us that we are here. Thus know that a true expression is not done by sound or form, and a true teaching has no particular shape, consensual reality. And what is that threshold where matter that has already been in being begins to experience consciousness? So again, and I'm not re- so I'm deliberately not reading it exactly the way it appears on the page, so that a repetition of consensual reality, things like that. Again, it's that's in the swirled version, in the version that's the, the shape writing version. You know, it's it occupies a different space in the middle there, and so sonically, I want to try. I'll, I'll riff and do something different, but it depends on what music is there or who else. So if we were doing it to get did it again, then maybe you could say consensual reality whenever you felt moved to in the course of what I was saying, and then it would start to become a different piece. Yeah, and the one that I read in a more pious kind of voice about having no form, no particular form, which comes from that's the quotation from Dogen in the 13th century. Someone else would read that, and that would be in a different tone of voice, and so. Uh, I forget the name of the particular performance artist, sound artist that a friend of mine had turned me on to, one of the people I collaborate with. 
And something so simple just suddenly hit me, which is, oh, God, what he does is radically alter the pace of the reading in places fast. And so I thought, I hadn't been prone to do that. I don't know why I missed that pedal in my car, but uh, it's, now I know where that pedal is. So, so I'm really exploring different, some different ways of reading uh, that are they're rather intriguing. Because the standard poetry reading, it, its qualities are, are it's, it's, um, it's, what's the gar- it's not even, it's, it's worse than that. It's, it's a little bit of the Garrison Keeler uh, mode of, of reading that's, ugh. and, uh, it all, it has these pregnant pauses in it, but it also has a quality of perpetual uncertainty about it. Like I was looking out the window and I was, and I saw the trees. I want to think, well, shit, did you really? Perpetual uncertainty. I think that's a pretty good way to say it. There's like a lot of that. Perpetual, yeah. like, 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 like almost to a point where the reader doesn't even know if they're, am I here reading you a poem? You know, like they don't even know. They don't even know if they're there, you know? Right. Too aggressive to actually make a statement. You know, that, would be, that would be bad faith somehow. But no, that's. That's okay to let it all be there. Yeah. Well, I like well, this idea. I like this idea of the physical page informing the the uh, performance and the and the experience on the on the in the in that forum. You know the the oh, yeah. the experience uh, of a reading and what's the potential there. There's still so much to go. We have so much. There's so much work left to be done, and there's so much more to explore. Mm-hmm. So if you think of it, most the more formal readings that we sit in the school, the ones that occur at universities typically, the reading the reading room is almost always set up in a rectangle. Okay, and so I think so. A very simple way to think about what we're trying to do is to disturb the rectangle. Wrecking the rectangle. We call we call the readings the reading series wrecking the rectangle. Oh man, that was fantastic. Uh, uh, opportunity to to sit with you for a bit and talk about a bunch of stuff, man. Great. Yeah, we could. Yep, uh, and I'll be back in touch because do keep me in in mind in terms of what comes up next in in Montevideo if the election year doesn't derail all of that. And honestly, I'm probably not going to come to the next New Orleans Poetry Festival. Uh, it's it it's quite a cool thing and all that. But I'm really much more interested in smaller interactions, more more micro level kind of stuff. So uh, next time I come, maybe maybe it'll be the next time to set up this kind of living room thing that I was talking about or a space where we have, you know, 10 to 15 people and see what happens. Well, so, man, you know, I, I got a, where, where we're recording from today is my print shop. It's a couple 2000 square feet with a print shop up front and a bar in the back. And, and, Oh yeah, that'd be perfect. Like, all, we, all we'd need is cushions or something for people. As long as people have something to, to sit on. In the, in the Okay. Let's keep all that in mind. And thank you guys. Yeah, cool, thank, you. Man. thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot.